Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Sometimes, and, and I'm just content warning, if this might get gross, uh, sometimes I can't believe I get to spend like every day with you. <laughs> All right, yeah, you're right. This is out of the box gross. <laughs> it's just, okay. So like yesterday we were at a, a small mall and we had stopped at. What are you laughing at? Oh, I just am. Um, I'm recalling the moment. You know yeah. where I'm getting. Yeah, yeah. So we stopped at a Juan Valdez coffee shop uh, to get some coffee and pan de yuca, which I've become obsessed with. And I came over to the table that you were already seated at, and I went to sit down. So I pulled out my chair, but the chair legs screeched against the floor, you know, when you pull out on a tile floor and it's like, right? Mm -hmm. But the sound that it made was so specific. And I was like, oh my God, this sounded just like, and you went, stop, wait, don't say it. The Jurassic Park theme song. <laughs> and I was like, how did you know? <laughs> well, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> it was in a slightly higher key, but... But yeah, it was clearly the theme to the Jurassic Park motion picture. I couldn't stop laughing. I almost choked on my panda yuka. It was amazing. People were staring at us. I could. I was choking. Here's the thing. People are staring at us a lot here. <laughs> and it's understandable. And then later in the day, you accidentally left your jacket in a taxi. <laughs> <laughs> this was after uh, we had we'd put in 16,000 steps yesterday, and I was exhausted and wanted to take a cab home. And so we took a cab home, and he stopped at a busy intersection. So I'm hurrying to get out because there are cars lining up behind. And as soon as the car door slammed, I realized I left my windbreaker in the cab. 
And so picture, if you will, an extremely exhausted Jethro realizing that he left his jacket in the cab as it's pulling away from the curb. You went like this. You went, wait, no. My jacket. Wait, no. I I had no energy. (laughs) So I'm down a jacket. The defeated and exhausted way in which you went, wait, no. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I'll ever get over it. I I was bringing my emotions to the surface. It's what a good actor does, sweetie. Oh, but we did get a refrigerator yesterday. Yes, yeah, we did. And and this was kind of cool. The cost of living here, as we've mentioned before, is extremely low. Um, And so we went to buy a brand new refrigerator and we couldn't believe the price. It was like, you know, it's a big side by side and it was like $700 brand new in the box. And we asked if it could be delivered. (laughs) And they and they said, yeah, but there's an extra charge for that. $2.50. It was $2.35. $2.35. Who came up with that figure? I don't know. But it was so funny because you kept obsessing over the fact you're like, now this comes in a box. And I'm like, yeah, it comes in a box. I didn't want to be sold a floor model. And then the lady comes over and she's like, okay, so I'm getting the paperwork ready. And you were like, but it comes in a box, right? (laughs) Yes. I was really tired. And I I just lost my jacket. So... (laughs) We are getting closer to settling in. And and I'm and I'm very excited about that because even though I enjoy this Airbnb, this is getting old. It is. It's hard not feeling settled in any way. At the same time, it's exhilarating. Gonna talk about art a little bit today, but weird art. Okay. I have the utmost respect for artists who spend years learning their trade and the experience that it takes in order to become noted as an artist. Well, we've talked about the Museum of Extreme Art that's here in Cuenca. Yeah, that's really cool. We love it. But I've also become very fond of outsider art. And you introduced me to an outsider artist a number of years ago. What was his name? I don't know. The rock and roll McDonald's guy? Wesley Willis. Wesley Willis. Now, this was a guy who um, had no experience or training in art, and yet he created these extremely vibrant magic marker colors, very colorful drawings that are remarkable. He also fancied himself a bit of a musician. Yeah. Now, was he a homeless person? Yes. Okay. That seems to be a common thread with a lot of outsider artists. Now, outsider art refers to art created outside the boundaries of official culture and the mainstream art world. Often, outsider artists have little or no formal training in art, and their works are typically developed in isolation from the um, conventional art scene. The term is often associated with artists who may be self-taught or who may have mental disabilities or unconventional backgrounds. Here's a kind of a, a more detailed look at the characteristics. An individual vision, outsider artists often create from a highly personal perspective. They just do what they feel they need to do. There is, of course, a lack of formal training. Uh, oftentimes, there is a element of isolation. Outsider artists frequently create an isolation from the mainstream art community and even just society. 
would you consider an Andy Kaufman like an outside artist or is he more conventional? That's a great question. And when it comes to Andy Kaufman and his performance art, it's really hard to pin down because he did an exceptional job blurring the line between reality and fiction. So it's really hard to say in that case, but that is a great question. Thank you. I saw a documentary. It was called In the Realms of the Unreal. It was a 2004 American documentary written and directed by Jessica Yu, and it talks about an outsider artist whose name is Henry Darger. Henry Darger was born to Henry Sr. and Rosa Darger in Chicago, Illinois, on April 12, 1892. Now, his mother sadly died in childbirth when he was just four years old, leaving him and his father alone. The loss was followed by the birth and the immediate adoption of a baby sister whom Henry never had the chance to know. And his early life was riddled with losses like this and had a huge effect on on Henry as a young child. And that instilled in him a sense of abandonment and solitude that would follow him throughout his life. Darger's father suffered from a disability and was unable to care for his son, so he placed him in the Mission of Our Lady of Mercy orphanage at age 12. Darger was transferred soon after that to the Illinois Asylum for Feeble-Minded Children in Lincoln, Illinois, on one single observation from a doctor who noted Darger's, quote, self-abuse which was a term commonly used at the time to describe masturbation. So he was caught masturbating and they sent him to the Illinois Asylum for Feeble-Minded Children. Now, the asylum was notorious for its poor conditions and its horrible treatment of of its inhabitants. It was here that Darger likely developed a deep-seated mistrust of authority, and understandably so. For sure. In addition, a heightened sense of isolation. Many reports suggest that he attempted to escape the institution several times before he finally succeeded in 1908 at the age of 16. But during these challenging years of isolation in the asylum, there were indications of Darger's artistic inclinations. He showed a particular fascination with weather phenomena, and he would often document weather patterns, which was a habit he maintained throughout his life. Though there were no surviving works of his from this period, his subsequent subsequent writings and artworks were undoubtedly influenced by his early obsessions with weather and weather patterns. So there's no doubt his early life was characterized by loss and isolation and the struggle against a system that seemed to conspire against him. The death of his mother, the institutionalization. Plus being in that environment, those are formative years. Very formative years indeed. These experiences undoubtedly shaped his later life in unexpected ways. So after he escaped the Illinois Asylum for Feeble-Minded Children, I just cringe when I, I I say that. Darger returned to Chicago. Now, this was a period of transition for him. He held various low-paying jobs before finally settling into a janitorial role at St. Joseph's Hospital, which was a job he kept for about four decades. He lived in a small, cramped apartment. Um, He was reclusive in nature, and in fact, that reclusiveness grew more pronounced as time went on. Now, when I say apartment, it was really just a small room, and he lived there for four decades. His room became not just a place 
of living but a sanctuary for him. His solitude allowed him to delve deeply into his creative mind, and he began taking the images in his head and attempting to bring them out into this world through his writing and through uh, unusual artistic techniques. Now, again, no education to speak of, Mm. let alone any type of formal education in the arts. His artistic process was extremely unorthodox and, of course, self-taught. What he'd do is he'd go through garbage cans and dumpsters, and he collected magazines and newspapers and photographs, and he used them as references for his illustrations. He would trace images, he would modify them, uh, then combine them with imaginative creatures and characters that he would sketch. And this method allowed him to create create intricate and visually stunning pieces despite lacking any formal artistic training. His art would often depict idyllic landscapes filled with fantastical creatures, but they also included disturbing and violent scenes. I think I remember this documentary now. I wasn't sure if you and I watched it together. It was a long time ago, and uh, I think we were just starting to, to hang out. So you had these idyllic landscapes, but then sprinkled amongst it violent acts of murder and horrible things. And it's thought that these contrasting themes may reflect Darger's own complex emotional world and his struggle with with isolation. And again, his obsession with weather continued into adulthood and he would meticulously document weather patterns. And this attention to detail extended into his art where weather phenomena also played a central role. It's uh, been speculated that the focus on weather was both a reflection of his need to try to control things or, or a sense of order and a perhaps metaphorical expression of his inner turbulence. Now, his work was really complex and it took great amounts of time, but he never sought fame or recognition. He simply did his job. He would attend mass regularly. He had a few acquaintances, but the few people that he did speak with had no idea that he had these artistic pursuits. Right. He just lived his life alone in obscurity in a small apartment and his art was known only to himself. Now his main body of work is called The Realms of the Unreal and it's centered around the Vivian girls, seven princesses who led a rebellion against child enslavement. And the work is both complex and contradictory, filled with themes of innocence, bravery, violence, and redemption. There's a an image of a little Victorian girl with big wings, and I feel like... That was one of his, uh, yeah, yeah okay. artistic creations. Because not only would he write these stories, but he would also illustrate them. Mm. And it's pretty obvious he was trying, he was exploring his feelings of powerlessness and injustice. And uh, in his books, by rooting for the Vivian girls, he could vicariously triumph over his oppressors that he encountered, well, since he was a child. His art is strikingly detailed and innovative. He taught himself techniques such as tracing, collage, watercolor, painting. His dedication to his craft was immense. It was all he really lived for. He would spend his entire nights after work, just working on one little illustration or maybe one paragraph in his book. He had an unbelievable ability to focus and find meaning even in the most mundane aspects of his life. His obsession with documenting weather, for example, translated into beautiful and intricate depictions of atmospheric phenomena in his artwork. 
Darger's art and writing, it was more than a hobby. These were therapeutic and life-affirming for him. And it probably helped heal some of the, some of the trauma that, that he experienced sure. over his life. In his final years, Darger's health began to decline and he was moved into a nursing home where he passed away. The room that he had occupied for over four decades had to be cleared out. And it was only then that his landlord, Nathan Lerner, who was also an accomplished photographer and artist, stumbled upon Darger's hidden masterpieces. Darger's small room was filled with stacks of manuscripts, paintings, drawings, collages. Among them, his masterpiece, The Realms of the Unreal. This book that he wrote for four decades was 15,145 pages long. What? All filled with striking illustrations. And it wasn't complete. Lerner was taken aback by the depth and the complexity and the artistry of the work, realizing that he had unearthed something extraordinary. Right, and how wonderful that he recognized that and brought it to the world. I mean, it could have very easily just been trashed. Just been tossed out. Until that moment, Darger's art had been a profoundly private endeavor. Even those who knew him were unaware of his artistic pursuits. The discovery of his work was almost like a window into his soul and it revealed a hidden world of imagination, complexity, and beauty that he had never shared with anyone. So Nathan Lerner, the landlord, and his wife, Kyoto Lerner, they recognized the significance of Darger's work and took steps to preserve it. They carefully cataloged the collection and began to share it with art historians and galleries. And slowly, but surely, the art world began to recognize Darger's genius, and his work has been exhibited and celebrated. His posthumous recognition has held a lasting impact on the appreciation and understanding of outsider art. His work defied traditional artistic norms. Um, he was self-taught. It has inspired a reevaluation of what constitutes legitimate art. He's become a symbol of the potential for extraordinary creativity that exists outside the mainstream artistic institutions. Well, we've talked so many times about what it is that constitutes art and why some people feel like they get to be the boss of what art is. Yeah. And so often it's those, and I'm not trying to be like classist or anything, but it is those with money who feel like they get to determine what is and is not art, which is so unfortunate because it's so often those without money who make the most yeah, amazing yeah. art. In many cases, that's true. The big reveal of Henry Darger's hidden world was a momentous discovery in the history of art. His lifelong dedication to his private imaginative realm was suddenly brought to light, uncovering a complex and captivating body of work. The recognition and preservation of Darger's legacy has left an indelible mark on the outsider art world. And just to clarify, it was after he passed away that his art was discovered? Yeah, yeah. So it's so hard to know if he was into the idea of the world knowing of his genius. Well, he spent four decades by himself single-mindedly focusing on, this, on these art projects. Mm. And probably had no intention of ever trying to publicly exhibit. He was just doing it because he f it felt good to do. Mm. And it was, I'm sure, therapeutic. My source information, Henry Darger in the Realms of the Unreal by J. McGregor. 
Henry Darger, Throwaway Boy by Jay Eldridge, and The Tragic Life of an Outsider Artist by M. Bonastile. And, of course, In the Realms of the Unreal, the 2004 documentary written and directed by Jessica Yu. So interesting. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, that thing in the middle. Throughout history, the disease syphilis has gone by many names. Before it was syphilis, the Italians called it the French disease. The French called it the Italian disease. The Portuguese called it the Spanish disease. Russians called it the Polish disease. The Polish called it the German disease. And the Arabs called it the Christian disease. Whatever you call it, one thing's for sure, it's well-traveled. Ashley writes, Hey, Kat and Jethro, I was listening to episode 562 and Jethro talking about crisis apparitions when he mentioned the story of the woman who got a call from a loved one and later found out that they had passed away before the phone call. I have a very similar story. Oh. 
My grandfather passed away at the end of January 2006. When he passed, my mother had just gotten a cell phone for Christmas. Not long after he passed, I broke my cell phone. Since my contract was almost over, I took over his phone and phone number. Sometime in April that year, I spent the night at my grandmother's house. I woke up the next morning and I had a voicemail, but it did not show a missed call. I called to listen to the voicemail and heard my grandfather's voice say, Hey, Ash, and then static. I'm okay. What? Sadly, the voicemail accidentally got deleted before I could record it. Thanks for listening to my story. Wow, Ashley. That's unbelievable. Emily sent me a very long and thorough message of hacks for Stardew Valley. Now, I'm not going to get into <laughs> it, but I do want to thank Emily for thinking of me. <laughs> yep. I'm so excited to get back to the States and collect my PS4 and bring it back here so I can take advantage of these hacks. Hey, Matt, did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope, never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Autumn sent me a TikTok, and the TikTok was by a guy named Andy Zhang, who tells some really fun stories. And if you're on TikTok, you should check him out. It's really good. Uh, so this particular story was about Art Goebel. Now, Art Goebel was a pilot who was performing a stunt midair when one of his plane's wheels fell off. Oh, no. When was this? Yeah. This... <laughs> What year? Yeah. It was 1926. Okay. Wheels fell off a lot of things in the 1920s. That's true. Um, so yeah, this story starts with a, a wheel falling off of a plane. And the lore of this event is even crazier. Let's get into it. It's 1926, though we've already established that because 
you asked. And Art's up there in a single-engine, two-seater plane that looks to be made from supplies from the Arts and Crafts cabinet. (laughs) Now, he knows that he's not going to be able to land with one wheel without the risk of serious injury or death. So he has no choice but to just continue flying around, waiting, hoping for someone on the ground to come up with a plan. Now, that's where Gladys Ingalls comes into play. Being at an air show, there are other planes and pilots around, and Gladys suggested that another pilot fly her up to Art's plane so that she could assist. Bon McDougall gets his Jenny ready, Gladys straps a plane wheel to her back, and they head up. This story is wild, but the situation, is it everything that it seems? As Andy Zhang mentions in his TikTok, Gladys had done this before. So... What? (laughs) What? Let's go back a year or so. Ronald Bond McDougall, Jack Fry, William E. Matlock, and Paul Richter and Ken Nichols formed the core of the famous 13 Flying Black Cats. This group added and changed members frequently, and not all through their time together were recorded, but together they performed flying competitions and aerobatic displays. These included wing walking, changing planes, playing cards while on the wings of planes, pretending to play tennis. I've actually seen old film footage of these types of stunts, Mm. and they make me queasy even to this day. <laughs> Their first show, the Burdette Field Air Meet, drew thousands of spectators. The motto of the 13 black cats appealed to this image by saying, if a black cat can't do it, it can't be done. Now, Gladys was one of the members of the 13 flying black cats. Now, I need you to understand that just because I believe this stunt to have been staged, does not mean that any of what these people did was any less impressive. Okay. First of all, planes had been around for fewer years than Law & Order SVU has been on the air. Wow. Gladys Engel was a pioneering aviator. She was the fourth woman to obtain a pilot's license. In 1921, she and her sister Anne joined the CPO Aerial Circus. They thrilled audiences by parachuting from balloons, and the following year they ventured into airplane stunts. They competed in a parachute race by jumping from separate planes to see who could get to the ground first, which (laughs) when we're talking about jumping from planes, getting to the ground first doesn't seem like a great goal. Yeah, I I guess in the grander scheme of things, one would want to get there last. (laughs) During the 1920s, Ingalls stood out as one of the few female members of the 13 Flying Black Cats. She proved her worth when she walked blindfolded on the wings of a Curtis JN4 biplane as it flew over Los Angeles. And also, she mastered mid-air archery. (laughs) Yeah. Now, keep in mind, this didn't involve a parachute. It wasn't until 1927 that a law was passed requiring aerial stunt performers to wear them. So all of this was done with zero protection. Wait, yeah. they, the jumping from plane to plane to see who could get to the ground first had no parachutes? No, the, the, those were parachute those, okay, races. That, that was those, later. That was, okay. no, that was earlier. But playing tennis yeah. on the wing. Yeah. The, okay. 
Wow. Through the 1920s and 1930s, she captivated audiences with her aerial performances and fearless wing walking. One of Gladys's most remarkable feats was her ability to hop from one plane to another midair as though it was no big deal. Like it was fearless and extraordinary. Her stunts and wing walking made her a celebrated figure in the aviation world. So now we're going back to 1926 and Art, I wrote Art Goblets. Um, His name was not Art Goblet, by the way. Art Goebel's Missing Wheel. Now, I found many references to Gladys Ingalls changing from Bon McDougall's Jenny to Art Goebel's Jenny during her career, but I can't verify that it was Bon McDougall's plane that she went up in in this okay. particular instance, but I really, I think it was. There are a lot of photos of her specifically changing from Bon McDougall's plane to Art Goebel's plane. Bon flew her up. Gladys changed from one wing to another, 2,000 feet in the air. She scootled down to the chassis. By the way, I had to look up plane parts in order to know that <laughs> that was where the landing gear where, goes. Where she scootled. Yep. Yeah. And she attached the new wheel. Art was able to land the plane with Gladys standing on the wing without incident. So not only is she like this 2,000 feet up aerial acrobat person with seemingly no fear she also can change a wheel which is nice i picture her hanging upside down with like a socket wrench ratcheting in the (laughs) last two or three bolts of the landing gear her hair's perfectly in place of course probably in one of those flapper hairdos you know it had that swoopy thing in the front yep the swoopy thing This whole thing, incredibly impressive, even if it was staged. And some claim that it wasn't. But staged accidents were part of the Cats show all the time, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is scarier to me than almost anything else. When we were on the cruise uh, last year and we were watching that water show, the water and air show, where they were diving off of these high dive yeah, like boards, six stories right into water and then the next moment the water that they had been swimming in was then ground i mean it was the it was staging the, the yeah. floor came up and at any moment if the floor had come up at the wrong time they would have been diving into floor plus and it just, plus you're you're out in the open ocean and things are moving everything's moving it's swoopy doopy and it's, you don't have control i did not like that I mean, it was amazing. It was rough. One of the stunts that they would perform was that a person was performing archery or playing tennis or whatever on the wing of an airplane, and they would fall from the aircraft, and they would drop about 400 feet before a thin cable that would then suddenly reveal a parachute. And the cable was invisible to the audience, of course, because they're so far up in the air, but they're just free falling, and then all of a sudden, whoa, never mind. Wow. And I imagine for that day, that must have been just spectacular to view. I can't even imagine. Now, again, a shorter period of time since the Wright brothers had said, oh, well, I guess this one works <laughs> to this day. Yeah. Law and Order SVU has been on for longer. That's crazy. Which, by the way, I just learned like last week that Mariska Haggerty mm-hmm. is Jane Mansfield's daughter. See, I didn't know that either. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. How did I not know that? And she was in the in the car during the accident that killed Jane Mansfield. Yeah, like she and asleep, her siblings. Asleep in the back seat or something. Yeah. Oof. Now that I know, though, looking at pictures of them, it totally makes sense. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mariska Haggerty is just yeah. gorgeous. And she still has a scar from that car accident. Anyway, okay, what was I saying? Planes, Gladys, stunts. One of her most audacious stunts involved standing on the wing of an aircraft while the plane performed a loop-de-loop. I've seen film of that, too. Yeah. It's probably her doing it. It's probably her. You're right. I can't imagine there were a lot of folks that uh, would attempt that. Yeah. When asked about fear, Gladys said, there's nothing to it. Nothing to it at all. She said she had experienced her fair share of Challenges, forced airplane landings and crashes and stuff. So, you know, Mm. standing on a plane wing, this is no big deal. Wow. Nothing to it at all. Talk about being able to compartmentalize. I guess so. The Black Cats and Gladys herself were premier Hollywood stunt people. In the late 1920s, they disbanded because there was too much competition. At the time, everyone was like, oh, well, I guess if I jump from a plane, I can make some money or whatever. Mm -hmm. So they were like, whatever, we're not doing this anymore. Eventually, Gladys retired from Hollywood. It's said, though, that she transferred from the wing of one aircraft to the wing of another midair more than 300 times in her career, never having a slip. She went on to live a long and healthy life, passing away in 1981 at the age of 82. 300 times she made that jump. Yeah. That is a remarkable life. I got my information from Antique Archaeology, History of Yesterday, Selvage Yard, and San Diego Air and Space. How about Gladys? Gladys is awesome. Amazing. I know for a fact I've seen those film clips of her, and I'm pretty sure they were in a documentary called Gizmos. It was a documentary about just daredevils from the 1920s, as well as people with strange uh, uh, talents or inventions that didn't quite get off the ground. Oh, fun. It's very, very interesting and quite humorous. I would like to watch that. Thank you. Well, I'll see if I can find it for tonight. Pizza and gizmos? Okay. Okay. (laughs) We'll see you guys next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Ratcheting, 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 ding, 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 